All right, good morning again. We, we come to the point in our, our uh, service that we, we look to God's word. We've, we've spoken to God with our songs, right? We've, we've spoken up to him. We've uh, spoken to him in prayer. We've asked him to do things. But this is the time that we let God speak to us from his word. And so today we're picking up uh, once again in our study of the book of Genesis. Uh, this is the, the book of beginnings. And as you uh, see in your bulletin there, we'll be looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And uh, we're actually going to spend two weeks in this uh, passage. I wasn't originally intending to, uh, but the more I studied, the more rich that I saw this text was, uh, <laughs> the more I wanted to split this into to two weeks and spend a little extra time here. So you could write next to uh, the title that this is just part one <laughs> of, of looking at this passage. And, but what I want to point out before we even get going is it is so important uh, when, we, when we look at texts like this, and this is one of the main reasons uh, I chose Genesis as the next book for us to go through and why I believe God led us to go through it, is Genesis really is the book of beginnings. It's the book of origins, where things come from. And already in Genesis, you just think back what we've studied so far, we saw the beginning of creation, right? Everything that exists. Uh, the beginning of mankind, male and female, uh, the begin beginning of, of work, uh, productivity, labor, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of reproduction, uh, the, the beginning, sadly, of sin and fallenness. We see the beginning of the curse that we now live with, but we've also seen the beginning, the promise of salvation. Now, we've even seen some less theological things as beginnings, and I think that's important, too. We've seen the beginning of farming, you know, plants, growing plants. We've be seen the beginning of animal husbandry, raising up animals, uh, metalworking, music uh, making. We we've seen all these different things, these beginnings. But what I want to show you is that this week we're going to, again, see some beginnings that, that we hadn't seen yet but they will carry on through the rest of the Bible. And, and they're things that we see even today. So I'm going to mention to you right now what we'll see in this passage. Not all of these things will we even cover this week. Uh, but but things we'll see in this passage that will carry on through the rest of Scripture. Uh, first, we'll see the beginning of corrupt governmental superpowers. That, that might seem odd, but that actually is a theme all throughout Scripture. Uh, we'll have here Babel which will later be known as Babylon. Um, I'll just go ahead and tell you, throughout the Old Testament, this word Babel, uh, this city that we're going to look at, it is the exact same Hebrew word when you see Babylon in Hebrew. I I'm not exactly sure why it's translated differently. Maybe I'll have an answer for that next week. Uh, but it, it is the same word. I looked it up um, in, in the Hebrew Bible. It is the exact same word. And so at the very least, ba later Babylon, this, this huge superpower, corrupt superpower, is derived from, at the very least in the spiritual sense, this original superpower, this original corrupt uh, uh, anti-God superpower, Babel. But we, we see it again with Assyria and Egypt in the Bible, but this is the first time. And uh, Babel is, is uh, th this particular um, superpower is very important throughout the Bible. We'll see uh, later on in Israelite history that they will have some interaction, you could say, with Babylon. Uh, they, they will be taken into captivity, exile by, by Babylon. 
uh, Babylon will destroy Jerusalem. Uh, th- these things all happen in, in the 500s BC, and it's, it's very important, but even further than that, it doesn't end there. We'll see in the end of the Bible, in Revelation, that there is the great harlot, uh, is the, <laughs> the great harlot is Babylon. This is this, this great uh, world city, this great corrupt anti-God power that God will deal with in Revelation. So this is a, a thread that goes all through Scripture of this corrupt government superpower, Babel or Babylon. This is the first time we see that. That's the beginning of this type of, of uh, theme. Uh, in addition, we won't talk much about it, uh, but we'll even see a type of antichrist that's, that's leading this rebellion. And uh, that'll be Nimrod. Uh, he's actually mentioned in chapter 10, what we, which we studied last week. Uh, but it, it's his work going on here in chapter 11. But he is not the antichrist that we'll see in the end times, but he is, he's a type. He's a, a figuring, a foreshadowing of that antichrist. And he is, to, to the best of my understanding, he would be the, the first prefiguring. We, we kind of see that with Cain. We kind of see that even uh, with, with Enoch and some of the others. Uh, but, but he seems to be the first actual type that's leading this charge of rebellion in, in a big way. He's prefiguring the antichrist. This is uh, another beginning, um, and we'll get into this. This is, I I don't want to be dogmatic, this is most likely, you'll see where I'm going later, but this is most likely the beginning of paganism uh, and idol worship. Okay, the beginning of paganism. And what I mean by that is, up to this point, you had people who were godless, right? They, they rejected God. They wanted nothing to do with him. They, they were basically humanistic. It, it is all about uh, humans, what we see. But in, in this chapter, we'll actually see them not only be, be rejecting the one true God, but they will set up other gods, idols, this paganism. Again, that will be a theme all throughout Scripture. Idol worship, idolatry. Again, Babylon would be one of the, the key uh, uh, idol worshipers later. And that's where we see this pick up is here in Babel, I believe. Uh, again, I'll explain that later more. But we see this idol worship begin here. This is also, these are things we won't get to this week, but we'll see it in the text. This is the beginning of diverse languages, different languages, rather than there just being one language in the world. This is the beginning of languages, this multiplicity of languages. In addition, because of these beginning of languages, this will be the beginning of different nations, distinct people groups uh, that will spread all over the earth. That happens here in Genesis chapter 11. So these are all beginnings. Once again, we're in Genesis, the book of beginnings. And these will not only help us, by the way, to see the world around us and understand it. Why are there all these religions? Why are there all these different languages? Why are there all these different nations? But it will help us, especially as we read God's word. We we will see these threads of theology, these threads of biblical um, thought running all the way through scripture. And it's it's not by accident. God God wants us to pick up on these threads as we read through his word. So again, that's why I'm excited uh, about Genesis, is is it sets these foundations for us. It lets us know what direction we're headed, and, and it makes a lot better sense of things when we study them later. 
If you haven't already, turn with me to Genesis 11, 1 through 9. I'll read that now. <clears throat> this, this is the whole account. Again, we won't study the whole thing today. It says in verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, Now the whole world had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the people. Sorry, the Lord came down to see the city and the people and the tower which the children of man had made. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. That is God's word. That's what we're going to look at today. <clears throat> and this may be a, a little bit of a, a confusing story, and that's what I want to help clear up for you. I titled this today, Making Sense of Confusion, but there's a pun there. The word Babel means confusion. So we're making sense of Babel, this confusion uh, of what's going on. And just as a reminder, I, I told you this last week, but I, I think it's important that we pick it up as just so we study the Bible and aren't confused. The timeline of, of these events did happen during the genealogy given to us in chapter 10. We looked at that last week, and even in verse 5, I'll, I'll just read it for you, you can look back, 10 verse 5, it said, From these, speaking of the lineage of Japheth, <clears throat> from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. Each with their own language. Now, but then we come to chapter 11, right? And it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Hmm. Well, that, that's kind of weird, right? Did, did God mess up there? Did he, he forget how things really went? No, it's just that these things had happened in the middle of chapter 10, during that genealogy. <clears throat> the person who, who made Babel, is, is mentioned in uh, chapter 10, where is it? Chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, if you want to look there. Chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, it says, Cush, that's uh, one of the sons of Ham, who is a son of Noah, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Then it goes on to list others, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. We, read, we heard that word a moment ago, didn't we? They, they, they went to the land of Shinar, and they're building this city, and it, that city is called Babel, it tells us in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. So we see that this actually happens right in the middle of this genealogy in chapter 10, but it explains for us 
how these people spread all over the earth and, and why they had different languages and why they made different na uh, nations. That's what chapter 11 is going to show us. So that's sort of the timeline here that, that we need to see is that this happens in the middle of chapter 10. Okay, so now that we have that, that cleared up, we need to sort of get the setting of what's going on here. We've already mentioned it some, but I want to uh, look a little deeper. The, the setting of what's going on, of this, this world-defining event, is in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now we need to think about what's happened before this, right? So, there was a worldwide flood. Everyone but eight people, that's Noah and his family, were wiped out. But you remember, they, they landed. Where did they land? The, the mountains of Ararat. So they landed in this mountainous uh, region on the top of these mountains. But over time, as they are fruitful and multiply, <laughs> over time, the population is growing and growing and growing. And, it, and it's rapidly growing. And, and the, the population has gotten much larger so, it becomes incumbent upon, upon them that they need to, to migrate to a place that is more hospitable to this larger population. A, a place where they can grow more food, where they can, uh, uh, you know, pasture their, their animals and these things. And so, it says that they migrated from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So, they, they could flourish in this, this settlement. And one of the things that it mentions that, again, is kind of highlighted here is that the whole earth had one language and the same words. This, they had one language and the same words. That, that may seem relatively insignificant to you. Um, it it might, might seem insignificant, but you have to understand they would have had an incredible ability to communicate with one another. See, there's kind of a repetition there. They had the same language, right? So a, a language would be like, like English or, or Chinese or Spanish or something like that. They had the same language. But if you know anything about languages, not everyone that speaks that language uses the same words, right? If you uh, go to England or, or, or were to just, you know, watch a movie that's based in England, you start to notice that they use different words. Or even Australia, there, there's a lot of different nations. Jamaica speaks English as their, their dominant language. You know, they, they speak the same language, but that doesn't always mean you know what they're talking about. Uh, the, 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 they might use different words. I'll give you an example of this. It's kind of embarrassing because I'm supposed to be a southern boy. Uh, I was uh, born in, in Chattanooga, um, just, just down the road at, you know, Park Ridge East. And um, so I'm supposed to be a southern boy, but my family is all from Michigan. My mom's from uh, Upper Ohio, but everyone else in my family's from Michigan. So I've sort of had a, a northern upbringing with my, my language and things like that. And so it didn't really cross my mind. I didn't realize that my language was different and st until I started working at a motorcycle shop. If you know much about motorcycle shops, is they sometimes bring in a different clientele, and people would say stuff to me, and I would have no idea what they're saying. What you lack? I'm just like, what you lack? What you lack? What does that mean? What do you lack? What, are you, what, what do you lack in finishing working on that motorcycle? Oh, what do I lack? I mean, they would just say these things that I had no idea what they were talking about. It took me, I mean, a good while to be able to understand everything these more southern than me <laughs> people were saying. 
we had the same language, but we were using different words, and that really did oftentimes make for trouble. They'd ask for a tool and use a name that I had never heard for it, because it's sort of this, this southern term for that, that tool, and so it caused trouble, even for me, just working at a motorcycle shop, even though I've lived uh, in the south my entire life. But these people did not deal with that kind of, of situation. They had one language, but they also all used the same words. They, they were precise in speaking to one another. They were always understood in what they were saying. Uh, we don't know exactly, but I believe this is kind of conveying that they even had a more uh, wide and precise vocabulary than we do, right? We have rock means 20 different things, and you know, anyway, um, you know, they had a more precise language, most likely, is what's being conveyed here. They had the same words, the same language. And if you think of the, the cumulative effect of having this same language, the, the ways that they could communicate ideas and knowledge, the ways that they could work together, the, the synergy they could have in innovation, they, they were moving forward fast. And that, that's sort of the setting here, and we even see later God say that there's, there's nothing that will be impossible for them because they're, they're so powerful. They have this one language. This is giving them this, this strength to, to grow uh, and have more power than, than we even know today. That's what's going on here. They, they've, they've settled in this land of Shinar. They're not spreading all over the earth. They've settled. They've migrated uh, together. At least the large majority of everyone has settled in, there in the land of Shinar. And they all speak the same language and have the same words. Now let's see what they do there in this plain. Verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 say, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Okay, so that's not a big deal. They, they're, they're making these uh, uh, bricks to, to be able to build. Most likely they're um, in, in um, this is like the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. There, there just weren't very many big stones, so they had to make these bricks. So, so nothing, nothing weird there. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And I'm going to pause there. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Again, we, we hear that and, and we say, okay, what's, what's the big deal? They're, they're going to build a city. Okay, they're going to build a tower. Is there something inherently wrong with cities and towers that we don't know about? You know, uh, are, are contractors uh, the work of the devil? You know, because they, they build these cities, you know. But that's obviously not what we see in the Bible. God, God has his people build cities all the time. He has them build even his temple and, and these things. So the question is, what's wrong here? What, what's the big deal? What's going on with this city and this tower? For that, we have to more look at their hearts. What is their motive in building this city and this tower? And why does God, you know, respond to them in the way that he does to this building initiative? We've got to look at their hearts. So look again at verse 4, going a little further this time. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We're going to break that down. We're going to look at their hearts a little more closely. 
But I'll just tell you, we can kind of sum up this heart condition, what's going on here, their motives in one word, rebellion. They are rebelling against God with this city and with this tower. So I'm going to show you four different ways that I see in this text that they're rebelling against God, that their hearts are rebellious, and that's what this city, that's what this tower is all about, and that's why God (laughs) responds in the way that he does. And I I want to uh, just tell you now, try not to hear these things uh, as only about the people from Babel. Remember, try try to look at yourself as we we look at the the sins and the rebellion of these people. All right, I'll I'll say more about that later. All right, the first way that we see them rebel is they are rebellious against reliance on God. They're rebellious against reliance, dependency on God. You might remember uh, from chapter 3 where we saw the temptation and the fall into sin, right? We said that faith, uh, this, this thing that is pleasing to God, is believing in the goodness and provision of God. Believing and relying on the goodness and provision of God. And the opposite of believing in that, as we saw with Adam and, and with Eve, is this rebellion, not believing in the goodness and provision of God, not relying on that provision. These people want to be entirely self-sufficient. Uh, they're going to do life apart from God. Let me show you that. Just in verses uh, 3 and 4, the words, let us, are used three times, and then the words, ourselves, are used two times, And the reason those words are repeated is we're supposed to see that as a dominant theme of their thinking, a dominant theme of their hearts, of this self-sufficiency. Look at it with me there, verses 3 and 4. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. These people are relying on themselves. We, so, we see no mention of God here. We, see them, we don't see them uh, asking God, hey, should, should we stay here? Should we settle here? Should we make a city? Should we build a tower? We don't see any of that. We see them for themselves saying, let us do these things. They're going to find their security, their provision, their their, uh, protection in this city, this fortified city, rather than from God. They're self-reliant. You might remember uh, in the story of Noah in in chapter 8, this is after the flood, they land and the, the earth starts to dry out. And Noah finally takes off the top of the ark, and he looks out and sees that the land is dry. But then he waits almost two months before he gets out of the ark. Why? Because he waits for God to specifically say, it says there, go out from the ark. And we said when we studied that, that that was actually a mark of Noah's faith in God. Noah's uh, reliance on God, his dependence on God. He says, you know what? I'm not going to go anywhere or do anything until I know that that's what God wants me to do because I'm relying on him. Not my wisdom, not my abilities, not my power. There was that reliance. But these people uh, of Babel, 
are self-reliant. I love the way James chapter 4 puts this. This, this, These verses might have popped in your head. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16 say, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's self-sufficiency right there. Then it says here, verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. That's exactly the, the, the attitude that's being uh, uh, put down there in James is the exact attitude that these people of Babel have. Hey, let us go and make for ourselves this city. It'll be great. <laughs> we'll make bricks. We'll make a city. It'll be awesome. We'll build a big tower in it. We can do this. We don't need God. For their hearts are rebellious against reliance on God. Let us make for ourselves. That's the first part of their rebellious hearts. The second thing I want us to see is that they were rebellious against the worship of God. They were rebellious against the worship of God. I'll show you this. uh, Verse 4, just picking up in the middle of it, it says, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. With its top in the heavens. This is a... what I'm going to say here is somewhat debated. Again, we, we look back on, on old Hebrew language and try to understand exactly what's being conveyed here. But my understanding from my study is that this idea of this tower with its top that reaches into the heavens, that, that's not just talking about that it will be a tall tower. It's talking about that it's reaching up to like these, these heavenly powers sort of thing. Let's reach up to the heavens. Now, you might have heard this term, this, this tower was most likely known as a ziggurat. You, you heard of that? You think of like the, the Incas and stuff. A ziggurat is a, a terraced pyramid, right? It's got these different levels, and it goes up. It's either a square or a rectangle sometimes. And this is why it's important is a ziggurat wasn't just a neat-looking building. It wasn't just an ornament, ornament or a monument. A ziggurat was a place of worship. These towers were places, places of worship. See, there were stairs that were going up either to a room on the inside at the upper area of the ziggurat or even to the very top of the ziggurat. Stairs would lead you up, and there there would be a shrine and an altar to whatever god, false god, that shrine uh, was, was dedicated to. And I told you this earlier, Up to this point, we've seen people reject God. We are dedicated to life apart from God. But here we see them build this tower. Again, I I, I cannot say this dogmatically, but I believe, and and just from the historical studies and, and backgrounds on these things, I believe that this was a ziggurat and that it was a place of worship and not for the worship of God. They reject God, but then they make other gods. You see... These people had removed God from their lives. They had taken God and and thrown him to the side. And there was now this void in their hearts. They they now didn't feel significant because they they didn't have a big God around them. They might have begun to fear things around them, and they didn't have a God to protect them. 
They didn't have anyone to turn to when they, when they wanted protection. They didn't have anyone even to turn to to try to receive blessings on their life. And so what do they do? If you've gotten rid of the one true God and you have this void, well, you make other gods. You make false gods that more fit the mold that you would like them to fit. Well, I don't like that God that tells me what to do. I'll, I'll make these gods that I simply sacrifice to, and I can kind of live however I want to live, the way that fits my idea of good. That, I believe, is what's going on here in Babel. This is the first time that we see pagan worship of other gods. I believe that that's what this tower, with its top in the heavens, is talking about. Uh, some would say that this is probably the beginning of, of the zodiac, you know, the, the worship of the constellations, or not, they're not worshiping the constellations, but the gods that the constellations represent up in the sky, you know, made up of the stars. Others would say that this is uh, actually the worship of Nimrod, that he deified himself and said, use this ziggurat uh, to, to worship me. We don't know exactly what gods they have set up, but, but it seems like they have set up other gods. They are so rebellious against God, but they want a God at least, that they now worship other gods. You look around the world today, and we are a world full of religions. A world full of alternate uh, beliefs, things that supposedly give people significance and, and security and, and blessing. This is where that finds its origin, right here in Babel. This paganism, this idol worship. So they've rebelled against relying on God, they've rebelled against the worship of God. The next thing that we see is they are rebellious against humility under God. They're rebellious against humility under God. Uh, you know, the opposite way of saying that would be they have pride over God. Verse 4 said there, and let us make a name for ourselves. You see that there? And let us make a name for ourselves. That's this motive they have in building this city and building this tower is that they want to make a name for themselves. Now, we need to understand that this word name isn't just a, a label or, or a title, you know. It's actually talking about reputation. It's talking about honor. They want to be honored. We, we saw this same word, actually, in Genesis chapter 6 earlier. Genesis chapter 6, 4 said this, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So that word renown in the Hebrew is the exact same word here as we will make a name for ourselves. So you could put that in, into Genesis 11. We will make our names renown. We will make people honor us. We will make people look at us and say, wow. That's what these people are doing. That's what it is that they want to make a name for themselves. They didn't just want a city. They didn't just want a tower. They wanted honor. They wanted respect. They wanted glory. And they wanted even the glory that God deserves. Psalms uh, 96, 7 and 8 says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. You see those words right there side by side, the glory due his name. And these people want to make a name for themselves, not glorify God. Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. You see in this, this theme here, this name thing is about glory. They are glory robbers. Because we know, uh, just one good example, Revelation 4.11, is that God alone deserves this. It says, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So why does he deserve it and we don't? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. These people wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted the glory. They wanted all eyes on them. They wanted respect from men. I'll show you even later on in, in Babylon's history. I mean, they, they do this stuff all the time. But in Daniel chapter 4, verses uh, 28 through 30, I believe. We'll see what verse I end at. <laughs> uh, it says this. All this came, came upon King, king Nebuchadnezzar. That's, that's the king of Babylon at this time. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered, answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, if you've read that passage, you know that the next thing God does is shows him that he does not have the glory. It was not by his power. He sends this king who's built this great empire out into the fields to live and eat like an animal with a crazy mind uh, until he learns his lesson. But this is a, a pattern with, with Babel, with Babylon. Again, they're, they're really talking about the same thing here. This is par for the course for them to seek the glory for their name. They want to make a name for themselves. This is the rebellion of them. I don't want to glorify God. I want the glory. I want to be thought well of. I want the honor. So they're rebelling against their rightful place of humility uh, under God. They want it. So we've seen that they rebel against reliance on God, worship of God, and now humility under God. But one final rebellion we're going to see that they have this intention of their hearts in building this city and building this tower is fourth, they are rebellious against the will and command of God. They're rebellious against the desires and what God has told them specifically to do. They say that they want to build this, this city, build this tower, verse 4 again, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We want this city that people will come here. This, this isn't just a, a city for people to come visit. This was supposed to be a, a rallying place, a place where everyone would gather together. And this even makes a lot of sense with the tower being a place of worship. They're saying, hey, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be protected, you need to worship these gods that we have made. And the only place you can do it is at this temple, this, this ziggurat which we have created, this tower rather that we have created. And that's not all that crazy when you think about that that's exactly what God did with Israel. He, he, he you know, has them in a city, and he has them build a temple, and that is where they need to come and worship. There is a place, a rallying point, and that's exactly what's going on here with Babel. 
They want to build these things, not just to have a nice city, a nice place for people to live, and this tower. Not, not just for those things, but so they can have everyone stay there. And you think about, there's, there's lots of reasons they could maybe want this, you know. This would make them more powerful. They're, they're in control of everyone instead of people being spread all over. This would help them uh, to, to grow faster. They'd have more workers. They'd have more intellectual power. They'd have all these things. But what I even see here is they, they specifically say it. And, and that's just kind of weird to me. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Why would that even cross their mind? Why are they so afraid of people dispersing over the earth? Well, again, there were those other motives, but I believe one of their motives, their heart motives here, is direct defiance against God. They want to directly defy the will and command of God. See, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God said uh, this to, to Adam and Eve. It says there, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We talked about this some back there in chapter 1 when we were studying it, but the, the idea was Adam and Eve were image bearers of God. They were representatives of God, and they were to be almost building a kingdom of God there on earth. The Garden of Eden was, was a place, but they were to, could cultivate the land, to, to uh, steward this land that God had made, and almost spread this, this paradise all over the earth as they spread God's glory through these image bearers. They were to spread all over the earth. That is what they're commanded in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But then, of course, sin happened. But we see that that did not break God's desire, did not break God's command to still fill the earth. We see after the flood with Noah and his family, chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. This is after the flood. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They were to spread. Now we need to understand again, this is not that long after the flood. This, this, it was enough time for the population to grow to be quite large, uh, but Noah was, was around for a lot of these people's lives. There would have been a lot of overlap here. And we know that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, right? So if God gave a command, this God who, by the way, wiped out all the rebels, if God gave a command, Noah was certainly telling people, hey, this is what God's told us to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We're to spread out. We're to spread God's glory all over the earth. But these people, even if they heard that, they, they knew that, and I believe they did, they say, no. We, we have pushed God out of our life. We're not going to listen to what he's telling us to do. It's, it's almost childish in my mind. Uh, you, you can tell a kid, uh, you know, don't do that. And just because you tell them not to do it, they do it, right? D don't touch that lamp. Next thing you know, they, they, they touch the lamp. Why do they even care about touching the lamp? Well, because you told them not to do it. Kids are sinners, <laughs> turns out. So that's what these people are. They are, they are rebellious. They are re directly rebelling against the will and command of God. So these people aren't just building a city. They aren't just building a tower. It's, it's not a, anything so innocuous like that. They are rebelling against reliance on God. They're rebelling against the worship of God. They're rebelling uh, against this humility under God. 
and they're rebelling against the will and command of God. These people are as wicked as it gets. That's as far as I'm going to go into the text today. Next week, we're going to look at God's response. But what I, the picture I want to give us is this wasn't that far from the flood. God has spoken. God has acted. He has wiped out wickedness. You think that would be a good warning to people. But we see in such a short time, the world has turned in, in intentional rebellion against God, intentional idolatry, intentional pride. Let us make a name for ourselves rather than glorify God. God has wiped out all the wicked people, but man's hearts are desperately wicked since the fall of Adam. And these people quickly turn back to that same wickedness at an even greater scale. That's, that's what we've seen here. That's, that's the text. That's the information of what's going on here. And at this point, it's really easy for us to say, what horrible people Babel was. Man, that Nimrod, he's a real jerk. You know, like, I can't believe he would do that. Try to make a name for himself, worship other gods, not rely on God, you know, go against God's commands. What, what a terrible guy. And then the people followed him in doing those things. I can't believe they do that. It's really easy for us to do that, that to look at them. But the fact is, I have and you have done each and every one of these acts of rebellion from your heart, just like Nimrod, just like these people of Babel. So I listed for you the four different ways that they've sinned, they, the four different ways they've rebelled, but think about it. We have all rebelled against relying on God for our, for our protection, relying on God for our satisfaction, for our greatest and deepest joy. We've all rebelled against God in that way. We've sought our satisfaction in other ways. We've, we've sought our protection in other things. We've trusted the locks on our doors. We've found satisfaction by the number in our bank accounts. That has been what we rely on. We have all rebelled against worshiping God alone. How could they set up other gods, we might think? All the while, we worship money. We worship comfort. We worship security. We worship uh, our, our, our looks, our pleasure, or whatever else our, our values are. Whatever else we chase with our wallets. Whatever else we chase with our time and chase with our hearts. We have set up other gods in addition to god maybe for the christian um, we've rebelled against worshiping god alone and each and every one of us have rebelled against our rightful place of humility under god all of us have said i want people to think highly of me i want people to think that i am skilled that i am good looking that i am useful we want people to think, wow, what a great man, what a great woman. That's what we want people to think about us. We want to, even at the cost of God's glory, I, I by the way, that think this, I think this even happens in our churches in our very Christian ways. You know, we might think, I, I want to be a very godly man. What's the motive for that? Do I just want to be a godly man so people look at me and say, oh, wow, what a godly man, what a godly woman? 
What an important man. Look at the roles he carries out. All the while, God's glory, it doesn't even cross our minds half the time. This happens in the church. I'm not saying this is everyone or every moment of everyone's life. I'm saying these things, they happen. And each and every one of us have rebelled against the clear will and commands of God. Right? We, we've all disobeyed, we've all lied, we've all stolen, we've all lusted, we've all been stingy and greedy. We've all been unloving, even though those things are clearly 100% commanded by God. Do not do these things. We say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. We go against the will and command of God. So what I want you to understand is we are no better than these people of Babel. The difference between me and Nimrod is I don't have a, a bunch of people running around to make that name for me, to make that city for me. I don't have the power. On my own, in my flesh, I am no better than these people. And guess what? I and you deserve much worse than what these people got in Babel. They were scattered all over the earth. Their languages changed. We deserve much worse for each and every one of our times that we rebel against God. We deserve God's eternal punishment, his eternal wrath for this rebellion against the God of all glory. We deserve it. We deserve it. But the good news is, and it's something I want to point out to you today, there was a man who never rebelled against God. Not in any of these ways, not in any way at all. And of course, his name is Jesus. I, I, I know we've all uh, heard these things, but, but think about it. Jesus was never self-reliant. That might seem weird, right? Because Jesus is God the Son, but Jesus was actually never self-reliant. He intentionally relied on God the Father for purpose and direction. We see all these times he, he leaves and goes and prays to God for, for strength and direction. I'll just give you a couple of verses even I'll just give you one verse. John 5, 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I do nothing of my own, Jesus says. I, I, I do as, as I hear, as, as God the Father tells me. That's the judgment I make. I'm not self-reliant. Jesus never worshipped any false god, and Jesus never tried to bring himself glory outside of what God had planned for him. He never deviated from God's plan for glory, and he never worshipped a false god. We see um, an example of that in Luke chapter 4. Uh, Satan is tempting Jesus as he's out in the desert for 40 days uh, fasting, and Satan's trying to tempt him. So uh, Luke 4 verses 5 through 8, listen to this says, the devil took him up, took Jesus up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus did not seek his glory in a way 
that went outside of God's plan. Jesus did not worship any false god. And we see even that Jesus never disobeyed the commands of God. Jesus never disobeyed the commands of God. You know, that's cool. We, we say, okay, he, he didn't disobey, so he never lied, he never cheated, he never stole. Yeah, but he also never disobeyed the, the commands that God gave him, things to do. Um, they're the sins of um, commission, right? I, I commit a sin, I do something wrong, but they're also sins of omission. God tells us to do something, and we omit doing them. Jesus never did either sin. Do you know what God told Jesus to do? Do you know what obedience looked like for Jesus? Jesus, Philippians is a great example of this. Philippians 2, God has Jesus take on human flesh, and then specifically in chapter 2, verse 8, it says, and being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedient. Obedient to who? Who was telling Jesus what to do? God the Father. Jesus did not commit this sin of omission. He didn't not do uh, these things that God commanded him. And it wasn't a small deal. It was death. Death on a cross, the worst possible way you could die. And not only that, that death on the cross was, was real. It really happened. But it also symbolized the, the, the torment of our wrath that we deserve from God being poured out on Jesus. That was obedience for Jesus. Paying the debt that our sins owed. Jesus never rebelled against God the Father. Now you might say, well, what's that have to do with me? Well, again, the beauty of the gospel is the fact that Jesus did uh, uh, remain obedient to God in every well, loyal to God, faithful to God the Father in every way. And then he went on that cross, and he did pay for our sins. That means that we can look to him by faith, we can trust in the work that he has done, and our record, our rebellion, just like the people of Babel, our rebellion can be wiped clean. Our record can be wiped spotless, clean. And in addition to that, Jesus' perfect record, all the good that he had done, all the times that he had forsaken evil, that perfect record of Jesus is imputed. It's given to us by faith. That is salvation. Our record wiped clean, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us so that we can stand before, we can enjoy, we can experience the God of the universe for eternity in heaven. Let me just show you this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. That, that means the sin was placed on him even though he'd never sinned so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are the people of Babel, but in him we become the righteousness of God. Romans 8, uh, verses 3 through 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So I, my flesh, could not obey God's law. I was weak from the heart. I disobeyed God. I rebelled against God. But God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son, that's Jesus, 
in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The bad news is, I was once a citizen, a worker of Babel. You either were or still are a, a citizen, a worker of Babel. Just as much in this wickedness, just as much in this rebellion, this iniquity. But the good news is, Jesus never committed that wickedness, never committed that iniquity. And because he is God, he was able to pay for your sins. Because he is God, he is able to give you his righteousness. So I stand before you today as an, an expat of sorts. <laughs> I was once a citizen of Babel, but now I, I'm a citizen of heaven by the, by the purchase of Jesus, by faith in Jesus. I can't work for this salvation, and neither can you. The only way we get this is by trusting in what Jesus has done, his perfect work, his uh, death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and the salvation he makes possible through faith. We come now, as usual, to this communion table. It is reserved for those who, who have trusted in Jesus. But I, I ask you today, as we have this time of prayer, would you recognize, would you ask God to help you recognize what city you are a citizen of? Are you a citizen of Babel? Or are you a citizen of heaven in Christ? And if you realize that you're a citizen of Babel still, these, these sins, this rebellion still marks the patterns of your life, then I would say, turn to this Jesus who never rebelled. Turn to this Jesus who gives you his righteousness. Trust in him alone. It is our only hope. It is our only hope. But I would also say, for those of us who say, no, I, I know I've trusted in Christ, I would say, ask God to speak to you. Ask God to show you if there be any wicked way in you, as the psalmist said. Is there any way that you're not relying on God right now? Do you have your own plans that you're going to do by your own strength? Is there anything that you're worshiping other than God? Is there anything that, that, that you're doing that is, uh, or anything that you love that is actually making you sin to hold on to that thing? You, you're worshiping that thing instead of God. Maybe it's a pride issue. Maybe, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you've been in a church for a very long time, but you, you, you've come to realize, maybe all I care about is looking godly, not actually being godly. Not, not actually loving this God, not actually glorifying this God, but glorifying myself. Maybe you know that you are simply disobeying the clear commands of God. You know that you are in a pattern committing this sin, going to this thing that God has told you not to go to, doing this thing God has told you not to do, or not doing this thing that God has commanded you to do. Maybe you're disobeying the clear commands of God. Maybe all these things are true, 
But the beauty is the same gospel that saves the sinner is the, is the gospel that, that sanctifies the, the saint. We, we can still repent of these things. We must repent of these things. We must say, God, I'm struggling with these things, but I want to turn away from them. I want to turn to you. These people really did have the option. God had promised them a Savior. They could have turned to God, but they didn't. The question is, what are you going to do today? Are you going to try to enjoy yourself, or are you going to try to enjoy the God of glory, the God of the universe? Let's pray.